Um, today's scripture comes from Colossians 3, 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Matt. We good? Good morning. Uh, my name is Elliot Cherry. I'm the pastor here at Midtown 12 South. Uh, you may not be aware of this. Midtown Fellowship is one church with multiple uh, congregations, multiple locations in this city. You are currently at the 12 South location, if you didn't know. Uh, and I'm the pastor here. If you are visiting with us this morning, we're glad you're here. Uh, if you've uh, been skipping, uh, we're not so glad you're here. Kidding. Um, <laughs> Uh, but sorry, I just pointed at somebody. Um, but um, <laughs> we uh, we've been in a fall series uh, in the book of Colossians. We're calling our fall series uh, "Maturing in the Mystery." And here's where that name comes from. Give you a little context for the book of Colossians that we've been studying all fall. Paul, the apostle, was a church planner in the first century. After his conversion into Christianity from Judaism, he begins planting churches all over the Mediterranean. And then he gets arrested, and he gets sent to Rome, and he's awaiting trial in Rome, and he's got all these church plants throughout the Mediterranean, throughout the Roman Empire, and he's getting words about them from messengers, and how are things going, and what's the status like over here, and he then begins to write letters back out to his churches that he has planted one of those churches in Ephesus, he gets word that they planted another church. And so he's so proud, he's so uh, excited that this church plant in Ephesus has planted a new church and it's in this small town of Colossae in Asia Minor. So he's in Rome, in prison, awaiting trial and he writes this letter to this new church plant in Colossae and he knows that these are all baby believers. He knows that these people uh, are new to the faith, they're new to the kingdom, and he's wondering, uh, how can I build them up? How can I encourage them? How can I strengthen them? And so all throughout the letter, he's saying, hey, I'm writing this letter to you to not only encourage you, but to grow you, to grow you up. And here's what I wanna grow you up into, what I wanna build you up into, is that you would mature, you would become more and more complete in the mystery of God's grace to you also known as the gospel. And so each line of this letter that we're studying, all of it is with, the, with the, the intention, with the goal of saying, hey, Colossian church, I wanna grow you up in how profound and how wide and how deep and how mysterious is this grace of God to you that's presented to you in Jesus. I want you to build your life on it. I want you to build your identity on it. And I want it to alter how you view your, your entire life now as a new believer in this new kingdom I want to mature you in the mystery of the gospel of Jesus. And so today, in just a few short verses that, that were just read, Colossians chapter 3, just three verses, Paul is continuing to pull this thread that he began a few weeks ago as we studied. Paul has basically said to the Colossian church, hey, if you're a, if you're a Christian, if you've placed faith in Jesus, then you're a new creation, and what that means is, is that the old self is gone, and with that old self, you had your favorite clothes that went so well, they fit so perfectly with the old self. But now you're, you've got a new self, now you're a new creation, and that new creation has a wardrobe, that new creation has new clothes that actually fit better than your old clothes. So he's telling them to take off the old clothes and put on the new clothes and to dress themselves appropriately for their new self. 
And continuing in that theme this morning, Paul would be saying to us, there's this old wardrobe that you love to wear. I'm telling you to take all that off. Here's a new wardrobe that fits you better with these virtues that fit you. They were custom tailored to you. And now I'm going to tell you how to keep your clothes on. I'm going to tell you how to keep this new wardrobe on that you've been told to put on because it, it, it's, it, it fits for the new self. How do we keep them on? And he tells us in these three verses how to keep the new wardrobe of the new self on. And before we dive into this passage where he would tell us um, how to keep the clothes on, I just want to make uh, two points of introduction. One, we're only going to talk about one of these verses. <laughs> the pastors were joking earlier this morning uh, across Midtown that um, we could have preached kind of a sermon on each, um, each of these sentences that is in Colossians 3. We're only going to talk about one of them this morning. Um, so we're not going to get to so much gold that's in here, but we're going to focus on just one of these verses and how it would lead us. And here's the second point of introduction to our one verse. Yesterday, I got to go to a concert with my wife at the Cumberland Caverns. Anybody been? Cumberland Caverns? So four of you are cultured. That's great. Um, so saw Josh Garrels. Anybody? Anybody? There we go. Let's calm down. Uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It was unbelievable. It was it was spectacular. The Cumberland Caverns out in McMinnville, uh, McMinnville, uh, you, like, it's, it's this glorious idea that they, they've, they've carved out and they've found this, this incredible almost amphitheater inside of the Cumberland Caverns. And you walk in, it's beautifully lit. It's got this majestic chandelier and the, and the lighting and the acoustics. And you've got to hike a little bit a ways down in to go in to the show, to find the arena, to find the room where this show and this beauty, this magic is happening. And so how ironic or how, what, a, what a travesty would it be if I walked in a couple steps into the cave and I turned to my wife uh, who was with me, I said, you know what, I think I've seen all I need to see. We can, we can go back now. I, I'm good. I've kind of gone beneath the surface. I, I'm good. I, I've seen what I need to see in the caves. How, how many people would be saying, hey, no, there's so much more beauty a little bit farther in, a little bit deeper in. You, you're going to have no idea what you're going to miss out on if you don't come with me and come a little bit farther beneath the surface. I think a lot of us do that with our spirituality. We get a little bit beneath the surface and we get this language that takes us beneath the surface and we go, I think I've arrived now. I think I've kind of got all that, I need to, all that I need to get in order to be a spiritually mature person. And so many people who've gone before us would say, you gotta go farther in. Like this, th I know you took a step inside the cave, but there's so much more that awaits you way down in. That's what Paul's doing. That this is not a surface level or just beneath the surface uh, conversation or, or declaration that Paul wants to make to, to us and to the Colossian church. He's saying, let's go, let's hike down in because there's a majestic arena down there where, where magic is happening and I want you to go see that. That's where I want to take you. Let's not stay just one step in the cave. And so here's where he, he leads us. Here's how he's getting us into the cave. This is the, the one line we're going to study all morning that takes us down deep into the caverns. He says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Is that an oxymoron? Meaning he says, let the peace of Jesus rule in your hearts. What does the peace of Jesus have anything to do with ruling over anything? And here's, here's the, the simple answer and this is uh, biblical, but it's also, um, maybe you even know this just from a human experience level, that peace in the heart is always related to who or what is ruling the heart. 
That peace in the heart is always related to who or what is ruling in the heart, who's governing the heart, who's guiding the heart, who's directing the heart, who's dictating and ruling the heart. There is always a direct line from that place, who or what is ruling the heart, there's always a direct line from that place to whether or not you have peace or no peace. Let's back up for a minute. What is peace? I think that for many of us, when I even ask that question or we hear the word peace, we immediately associate it with an emotion. And so we say things like this, I just don't really feel at peace about that. And, and we, we then judge or dictate whether or not we are in peace or we are at peace based on how we feel about circumstances or scenarios or storylines or what's going on. I don't really feel like I'm at peace. And the Bible would say peace is an emotion. It's a state. It's a reality. Now, whether you are feeling it or not doesn't change whether or not you have it or not, or you can live in it and out of it or not. But when we say things like, well, I don't feel at peace, or I'm not really sensing a peace about this, that out of that unrest, we then go looking for peace elsewhere. I don't have peace. I don't feel at peace, so i got to go find it. i got to go get it. And maybe to use a better verb, a verb that's more fitting with the idea of peace, we don't just go looking for peace. We go fighting for peace. So if, if, we, if we don't feel at peace, sometimes we fight for peace by increasing our bank account. I need to feel at peace, and more zeros or more dollars would make me feel at peace. And so I need more money. I need to save more money. I need to have more money in order to feel at peace. And so my peace is then, the feeling of peace is then tied to something out there that I've got to go get. Or sometimes we fight for peace by winning people's approval, like I need my mom to think of me a certain way. I need my spouse to think of me a certain way. I need my boss to think of me a certain way. And then the, the peace that I would experience is now tied up in whether or not people are approving or disapproving of me or not. I gotta go get it and it's out there. I gotta win something to get the peace. Or maybe we fight for peace by accomplishing enough throughout the day to settle our souls. How many of you do a checklist at the end of the day? How much did I accomplish? And can I look back at the checklist and feel like I did something today? And then that checklist makes me feel at peace. So now my peace is tied to how many boxes I checked today or how good I feel about the boxes that I checked today that I do enough to achieve peace. But no matter what arena you may be fighting for peace in, here's what the fight reveals about you. The fight, wherever you're fighting for peace, it reveals what's ruling your heart. So if you think more money in the bank account will bring me peace, now money is ruling the heart. And now I've given over the rule of my heart to a bank account number or to how much my salary is or how, how secure I feel when I, look, when I log in and see what, what's in there. Or if you're, if, if you're fighting for peace by winning people's approval and having them approve of you, anybody, you would then have given them, given other people the seat of the rule of your heart. The throne room of your heart now has someone else on it. And their approval of you is whether or not you are at peace. But regardless of the entity that would be ruling your heart, here's a, here's a scarier question. Whoever you've let rule your heart in the, in the quest for peace do you know what scepter that ruler uses? Meaning this, do you know what battles you have to win if money is the ruler of your heart? Do you know what battles you have to win in order to achieve that peace? Like how much money is enough money? Do you know what scepter people's approval uses to rule your heart? Do you know how many people you need to have approve of you or what people you need to have approve of you, what specific people in order to achieve peace? Maybe a better way of asking it is this. Do you know what the ruler of your heart requires in order to deliver on permanent peace? 
Do you know how many battles you are fighting and how many battles you are setting out to win in order to achieve permanent peace? Like how comfortable do you need to be if comfort is what is ruling your heart? How comfortable, how easy does your life need to go? What battles are you fighting to make things be at ease in order to be at peace? Because here's the simplest definition for peace. And I don't mean to be oversimplistic with this definition, but here is the biblical definition of peace. Peace means no war. There is no war to fight because there are secure borders and the enemies have all been defeated. And peace is the tranquility. Peace is the calm that comes from knowing that there are no battles to fight. And only when the war is over can there be peace. And so all of these rulers that we let rule our hearts, money or people's approval or comfort or control that your life has to go a certain way and feel a certain way and your house has to look a certain way, whatever, whatever you've let rule your heart, do you know that that ruler of the heart is always telling you there are more battles to fight? There's never peace when money is ruling the heart. Because there can never be an enough amount to make you feel at peace. And the enemies have not been defeated enough for there to literally be no war to fight anymore. If there is a threat of war, if there is a threat of hostility, if there is a threat of enemies on the other battle lines, you will never be at peace. And the rulers of our hearts are always telling us there's another battle to fight. And so if peace means no war, all these other rulers that we let rule our hearts, they're constantly telling us that there are more wars to fight. So here's the question, and this is where Paul would want to lead us. We're going into the cave a little bit, okay? Taking a couple more steps in. We're not at the show yet, but we're close, okay? We're getting there. Are you at peace? Is your heart at peace? Or do you know how many battles you're fighting to try to achieve and win for yourself peace? Do you know the battle that you are fighting this morning in your quest for peace? Do you know where you're fighting and what you're fighting for? Maybe a better question or a more helpful question is, what is threatening your peace right now that is causing you to believe you still have to be fighting? And therefore, the fact that you believe that there's still a fight to be fighting means you're not at peace. Because Paul here says, let the peace of Christ rule. Meaning, when he uses that little balm of a word, let, when he says that word, that means you and I have a choice in the matter of who or what we are going to let rule the heart. Let the peace of Christ rule. And here, here's the, 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 the giant, uh, not so uh, subtle declaration that Paul is making when he says, let the peace of Christ rule. When you let it happen, he will do it. It's kind of like when you're driving down the road and someone's trying to cut over and you jerks don't let them in because you're that driver and you want to prove a point to people that are trying to get over. When you do that, when you actually do let them come in, guess what happens? They're coming. And what Paul is saying here is let Jesus, let the peace of Jesus rule your heart. And when you let that happen, he will come and rule it. It's this active passivity that Paul would say, will you let it happen? Because you're letting something rule the heart. You're letting money or control or people's approval or how things are going with your family. You're letting all those other things rule your heart. Would you let the peace of Christ rule? And when you do, he will do it. Something is always trying to rule the heart and therefore threatening your peace. And so Paul's command here is let Jesus' peace rule your heart. So what is the peace of Jesus? What is the peace of Christ that Paul gets at right here? Well, biblically speaking, 
The theme of peace starts way, 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 way back on page one in the Garden of Eden. The Old Testament Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Shalom reigned in the Garden of Eden. And here's why shalom reigned in the Garden of Eden. It's because with all of the complexity and the beauty of the majesty of all that God had made for his creation to delight in and enjoy and experience, the thing that drove the peace in the garden was that man was at peace with God. And then every other aspect of shalom bled out of that, that reality. There is peace here, so there's peace everywhere. That mankind's peace with God was the driving factor of shalom in the garden. And then, two chapters in, peace was shattered. Or in the biblical sense, shalom was vandalized. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. They declared war on his role. They declared role, uh, war on his peace. You will not rule over us. We will be the ones on the throne. And then peace was shattered because this relationship was no longer at peace because they declared a mutiny on the king that made them. And they said, we will rule and we will declare whether or not we're at peace and we will decide what is good and what isn't good. And so we will not have your peace and almost the entire rest of the Old Testament plays out this storyline of the peace between God and man being longed for, being worked for, being sacrificed for, being hoped for, being waited for, being prayed for, being promised. And that's what God's people are constantly doing and are constantly continuing to rebel against the same God who now they have shattered peace with. And so I don't mean to, again, oversimplify anything, but the, the question that hangs over the entire Old Testament, the question that hangs over from Genesis to Malachi, or Malachi, the Italian prophet, I call him, but sorry, <laughs> Bible joke, but the, the, uh, the question that hangs from Genesis to Malachi is this question, who will bring us peace? Who will restore peace here, and then in so doing, restore peace to the nations? Because when there's no peace here, there will be no peace here. So they're constantly crying out and wondering and, and praying and hoping and then rebelling against that question, who is going to make things peaceful here? And then the long way to Jesus shows up. And in Luke's gospel, when Jesus shows up at the incarnation, at the birth, at, at, at the, the, the arrival of King Jesus born in a manger, the angels come to the shepherds, and the first thing the, the host of angels declares to the shepherd, the very first thing that the, that the heavenly hosts have to say about this coming Jesus, you know what they say about him? Luke chapter 2, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among, them with, among those with whom he is pleased. It's the first thing that's said about Jesus. He came to bring peace. And then, all throughout Jesus' ministry, all throughout his ministry, he's healing the sick, he's restoring sight to the blind, he's forgiving the sins of the prostitutes and the sinners and the drunkards, and he's walking around restoring the world into the way it should be. He's bringing his kingdom into the world. And do you know what Jesus says after almost, almost every single interpersonal interaction he has with someone when he heals them or restores them or forgives them? Do you know what he says to them? Go in peace. And then Jesus gets crucified and he resurrects three days later. And then a couple women have seen him, but then he appears to his disciples who are locked in a room because they're scared to death of what might be happening out there now that their savior is gone or their, their redeemer is gone and dead. And they are hiding out in this room and Jesus shows up in the room. You know, the first thing he says to them, first words out of a resurrected Jesus's mouth to his disciples, peace be with you. 
that it's the first thing that's said about him. It's what he says all throughout in his miracles and his restoring of people. And then the first thing he says in the new creation with the, with the, after the resurrection, peace, 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 peace. What's going on here? It's the unmistakable reality that Jesus Christ's mission was in part driven by the desire to bring peace. But maybe not in the way that we think. Because we can hear that and we can imagine, oh, Jesus, bring peace. Like he's, he wants to bring me into this meditative state where I escape all of the chaos that I'm in. And then I'm, I, it's like this escapism peace where I'm not feeling anything in the world. And so when, I, when I've kind of shut down all of my feelings, then maybe I'll be at peace. This nirvanic uh, Jesus we imagine. But Jesus didn't come just to invite a meditative experience of peace. Jesus came to make peace happen, meaning this, to put it in the language of peace, Jesus' mission was in part about ending the war because peace is no war. Jesus didn't come and declare peace. Jesus came and made peace by ending the war, ending the strife, ending the hostility that stood between he and you. Paul says it this way. He says it actually earlier in Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. We looked at it several months ago. He also says it in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Jesus, we now have peace with God. Do you know that the blood of Jesus has bought your peace? Do you know that the blood of Jesus has ended the war between you and he? That the war to bring peace between you and God was won by Jesus. So all of the striving that you and I do to bring peace to our standing with God, all of the proving or the self-hatred or the self-deprecation, all the promises we make, all the fighting we do to create peace of conscience, all of the fighting that we do to create peace between us and God, we're fighting a war that has already been won. But somehow, and again, this, we're, we're, we're going into the cave. Here we go. We're almost there. We're getting to the, to the show. Even though that's true, that therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Jesus, we now have peace with God. The war is over. Somehow, though, we still hear the war horns going off, like the horn of Gondor. Sorry, I'm reading Lord of the Rings right now. You know, sorry. Anybody read that little book? Uh, Boromir, the horn of Gondor, can be heard all throughout Gondor that war is happening and he needs help, he needs aid. We believe that these horns, these war sirens are going off and there's all these other battles to fight. The war has been won, but we think that there are other battlefields that we have to go fight on in order to achieve peace. And here are the battlefields where I normally hear the horns and I think it's a call to arms. I think I've got to go pick up my sword and go fight to win myself peace there. Here are the battlefields. It's all of my space and time realities. Here's what I mean by that. I often hear the battle horn roaring and calling me to arms to come and fight in the sins from my past. That I believe that one day my sins will find me out and you'll find out what a fraud that I am. And so I pick up my sword. I don't even really know where I'm swinging it, but I have to go fight against it to try to bring peace to what I've done. And then sometimes the war horn cries out and blows out and I pick up my sword to go fight with the pain that I'm in in the present. 
that life is not working or feeling the way that I want it to, and so I need to go fight, but I don't really know where to go fight, and I'm just swinging my sword because I think peace is, is, is out there somewhere, and I've got to go defeat something or, or believe something or be more of something in order to get the peace right now because the pain is too heavy right now. The chaos is too much right now, so what do I need to go do right now to get myself some peace? And then sometimes the warhorn calls from the future, and, and this, is, this is the most taunting of all of them. The warhorn blows from the future. I pick up my sword to go fight in this battle that's out there somewhere because my future can feel so insecure and so fragile and so unknown that I'm trying to grasp for control and peace out there in this space-time dimension that doesn't even exist yet. And I will go get peace there. Again, I don't really know how to fight, but I'll pick up my sword and I'll go start swinging to try to secure peace there. Every dimension of my time and space reality threatens my peace. And the war horn blows and I begin to fight. And here's what the fight sounds like. Do more, secure more, make more, save more, control more, deliver more, understand more, be more. And Paul here looks at all of us and says, let the peace of Jesus rule in your hearts. That Jesus has made peace by his blood for all of your sins, not just past, but present and future. Jesus says to us in Ephesians chapter 2 that he himself is our peace and he is with us in our present pain. He is your peace and he's with you. And it says by the blood of Jesus that he has secured your future and it's more glorious than you could ever imagine. That if you belong to Jesus, the worst case scenario for your future, the worst case scenario is that all of your sadness would come untrue and all of your tears will be wiped away and you will be made new and made whole one day. That's the worst case scenario for you. And that's your future that his blood bought and purchased and secured for you. And so he looks at all of your time dimensions, past, present, and future, where you hear the war horns and you think you've got to go start fighting. And he says, there's peace in all of them. All of your time dimensions are at peace underneath the rule of Jesus. And Paul here would say, let that rule in your hearts. That no time domain can threaten the peace that Jesus has won for you. There is no war to fight. You can put down your sword. You can actually unclench your fist and open up your hands and receive whatever it is that the Lord has for you because the war is over. That language of victory that Jesus has won the war is why Whitney read for us our call to worship out of Zechariah chapter 9. We pick that passage. We always try to do this with our call to worships to pick passages that speak the same theme of the morning so that we would bask in it. The language of Zechariah 9 is a prophecy that's pointing towards from the Old Testament to the coming Messiah. And it is, it is, it is overly clear that Jesus the Messiah will one day obliterate all of his enemies and he will announce peace to the nations from the river to the ends of the earth, that peace is reigning now because the Messiah has come and he won. He broke all the bows and he broke all the swords. There is no war to fight, ultimately speaking, because Jesus won it for you. So near the end of the movie Blood Diamond, I was gonna show a clip, but we have children in the room, so you're welcome. Uh, but the, near the end of the movie Blood Diamond, Wonderful movie, Sierra Leone, blood, bloody but powerful storyline. Solomon, the father, this African father from Sierra Leone, his son Dia gets kidnapped in the rebel army and he's abused and brainwashed and forced to do awful things. 
And they, so there's this journey to go and find his son. And, the, and Solomon and Leonardo DiCaprio's character, they, they finally find Dia the son. And the father's so delighted to be back with his son. And he sees his son. And then they're dealing with something else. And they turn around and Dia the son is holding a pistol aimed at his father. And the father Solomon begins to speak to his son and he, be, and he stands up and he begins to speak an identity and declare back to him who he truly is. And he says, I know they made you, this is all while a gun is pointing at him. And he says, I know they made you do awful things, but I'm your father and you are my son and I love you and your mother is waiting for you and you're a good boy. And the son is weeping while he's, while he's hearing his father speak to him, shaking, and he slowly begins to put the gun down. And here's what he's realizing. It's this very powerful display of there is no war to fight. I know you've been convinced that you need to be fighting. I know you, you're convinced that peace is out there, but your father's here, and he's telling you there is no war to fight anymore. And he's speaking to you that he's ended the war between you two. And so you're not his enemy anymore. You're his child. And so he's declared peace because he won peace for you. There is no war to fight. King Jesus, the victor, has made peace. Peace that rules over your past, peace that rules over your present, and peace that rules over your future. There is no war to fight anymore. Now, to clarify, there will be battles to fight. There will be there will be moments where God's people are called to fight for something. And I'm talking about socially and globally. Yes, I'm also talking about like in your home. There will be things you need to fight for. The problem is, is that the thing that we normally fight for is not the war that we think we have to be fighting. Normally we fight to secure something that's already been secured. The wars from our past, present, and future that call to us to pick up our arms and go fight Jesus, the rule of the peace of Jesus in our hearts would look at us and say, the ultimate war is over. So now, Christian, if there are wars to fight, if there are battles to fight, you and I fight them very differently now. We fight them not to go get peace if we win. We fight them because we're already at peace. And now the outcome of this little battle doesn't dictate whether or not I'm at peace or not. I already have peace. I'm not fighting to get peace. I'm fighting because I have peace and I'm bringing that peace to this fight. And so if this goes the way that I want it to or not, it doesn't dictate whether or not I remain in peace or not. There is no war to fight anymore. We take that with us when we have to go fight. In John chapter 16, Jesus is about to be arrested and betrayed and crucified and he leaves his disciples. This is the last thing he says to his disciples before all of this happens on the night he was betrayed. He, say, he closes John 16, John 16, 33. He closes his statement to them in the upper room at the Last Supper by saying this, I have told you these things, meaning all that I just told you about what I'm about to go do and what all that means for you and what my mission was. I've told you all those things that in me you may have peace. And then he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. For I have overcome the world. Meaning this, in this world, you'll have some things to fight and it will be hard and there will be trouble. But take heart. I've already overcome all of those things. So you can go into those troubles at peace. Christ has defeated all of the enemies that threaten you. The enemies that threaten your peace have already been overcome. Yes, 
There will be things to fight for in this life, but none of the wars that there are to fight can threaten the peace that Jesus has won for you. Look, Paul gets this. Remember the context. Paul's writing this letter from jail. He's writing it awaiting an unjust trial in Rome, and he knows this might not go the way that I want it to go. And newsflash, it doesn't. He gets his head chopped off at the end of this storyline. Paul gets beheaded. And so Paul's writing from jail, unjustly arrested, awaiting an unjust trial in Rome. And he's saying to the church in Colossae, look, I get it. There's trouble. There's wars to fight. I'm not, however, at at a state of unpeace, even though the storyline might go awfully for me. And it does. Paul's saying, I'm letting the peace of Christ rule in my day to day. And he's not writing that from a beach in Hawaii. He's telling you, I know there are wars to fight. I'm fighting one right now, but that war can't threaten my peace. Regardless of how this war turns out, the peace of Jesus can rule my heart. Does it mean that all things will go as we want? No. Does it mean that there will be zero pain on the journey? No. Does it mean that there won't be heartache? No. Does it mean that there won't be questions and unknowns and moments that require excruciating faith and trust? No, but what it does mean is that Paul has learned to see his storyline and to see his circumstances from Jesus' vantage point. And he knows that the peace of Jesus dictates now all of the other moments in our finite life. And so now I'm letting the peace dictate how I'm doing in these moments that are changing and in this chaos. The peace of Jesus doesn't remove you from the chaos. It gives you peace in the midst of them. And now the peace of Jesus is ruling not how this situation goes or how this storyline works out or if I get everything I want or if my bank account looks a certain way or if those people think a certain way about me or if I get the family that I want or how my kids might turn out or how my kids are doing right now. None of that, according to Paul, gets to be on the throne room of your heart and dictate whether or not you are at peace. You are at peace because Jesus has won that for you and now the peace of Jesus rules those moments because none of those moments can take away your peace with God, past, present, or future. So as sweet as that news might be, it it is gospel news, the peace of Jesus. This is where we're about to go into the the arena inside the cave. This This is where the music is happening. Thank you. It's a good intro. Here's what's unheard of in the war for this peace, in the peace that Jesus has won for us, is that God, the offended party, initiated the process of making peace with his enemies. In other words, you didn't fight the battle that won your peace. He did. That God desired peace with you more than you desired peace with him, which means this, Please let this sink in. Not only does the gospel announce to you that you are at peace with God now, here's what else it announces. God is at peace with you now. Meaning, the way that you are today, the way that you walked in here today, the burdens you carried in here today, the shame that's crushing you, the sin that's entangling you, the fear that's distracting you, God is not frantic about those things like you are. God is at peace with you because of Jesus, which means we then get to borrow from that peace because I don't feel at peace with me. 
But if God's at peace with me, maybe I can start to be at peace with me. And do you know that if God is at peace with you, then you can actually, this, this is ludicrous and foreign for most of us. If God is at peace with us, if God is at peace with me, then I can actually begin to be still and enjoy being with him. Because now when I go to be with him, there's no agenda. Now when I go to be with him, there's not some growth strategy or some sin I've got to figure out how to justify and explain away. Guess what I get to do if I'm at peace with God and he's at peace with me? I just get to be with him. There's peace in both directions. He will never make me his enemy again. He has won that war. Now he is my father now, which means he might discipline me, but he will never discipline me punitively. He will never discipline me out of rage. He will only discipline me out of peace. He will only discipline me out of love for his child. And so when I go to him, there's peace. He's not worried about the things that I'm worried about in my life. The serenity of this that God doesn't view you the way that you think he does. And that subconsciously your restless heart can't imagine a God that would be at peace with you because you're not at peace with you. And not only are we at peace with God, but he's at peace with us. That actually means I can begin to be at peace with me. I can begin to sit in the reality of peace because there are no war horns blowing for me or for him. He's already won the battle, and there is no war, which means there's peace. And then keep pulling on that thread just for a moment, and this one stings a little bit, but it should be liberating too. Not only is he at peace with you, he's at peace with the people that drive you crazy. He's at peace with your spouse, he's at peace with your kids, he's at peace with your roommate, he's at peace with your parents. All the people that you wanna change, he's doing perfectly well with. He's at peace with them which means you don't have to fix them or change them. That if he's at peace with them, you can be too. Do you realize what that would do for your experience of peace? If you actually believe not only is he at peace with me, he's at peace with the people that drive me bonkers. Now I don't have to fix them or change them or make them more like me or make them see. God's at peace with them too. There's no war to fight. And Paul is saying, let that rule your hearts. Let that reality rule your moments. Regardless of how the moments go, regardless of how the chaos ensues, let the peace of Jesus rule in your hearts. Not only are you at peace with him, but he is at peace with you. It's hard to hear. But if we're gonna let the peace of Jesus rule, how would we do that? Paul actually tells us how to do that. Actually, I'm, gonna, I'm getting there, I promise. Uh, if, if, Paul, if Paul is commanding us to let the peace of Jesus rule, how would we do that? He actually tells us. It's one of the verses we're skipping over and not preaching on. So I'm just gonna read it and then I just wanna say a few things about it because it's one of the ways that we actually begin to let the peace of Jesus rule. It's how we practice unclenching our fists and holding our hands open. Will you throw verse 16 back up there, Darren, one more time? We throw the passage up there? Verse 16. He says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. That's what I just did, by the way. Word of Jesus, teach and admonish. And then he says, Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Verse 16 is your template for why we do and how we do corporate worship. It's where we get this idea. 
Let the word, let the Bible be taught to you to admonish you with wisdom. That's what I'm doing. You're welcome. And then the, the, the second half, he says it repetitively, singing spiritual hymns and songs. You have to get up and sing. You have to sing it out. And that is driving the peace of Christ deeper into your heart. And that's, let, that's how you let it rule your heart. So we're going to close in song as we do every week. We're going to sing three songs. But please, 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 please know this. We are not singing songs to fill time between the end of the sermon and the benediction. We're not singing songs because it's, it's great filler. And let's just get to the sermon because that's our favorite part. No, the singing is actually more important because that's when you're participating with it and you're standing and you're declaring. And here's what happens. Sometimes it's so powerful as it's overflowing out of me that I've got to learn how to sing out loudly from my heart and declare something to God. That's praise. But sometimes you don't believe a word that's going on up there and it's hard for you and you're wrestling with what you're singing out. It doesn't feel like it's true. And so you need to turn inward and sing back to your heart. I believe this even though it doesn't feel like it. And then sometimes you don't even have a voice. Sometimes you don't want to sing and you're angry and you're bitter and you don't want anything to do with what's happening in this room. And so you need to stand in the chorus that's happening and you need to let them sing to you. You need to borrow from their faith for this next little season and let them sing out to you. And all of it, you singing out, you singing back in, you letting it be sung over you. It's why we gather. It's why Paul says it right here. Because that action, that physical doing is forming you, it's shaping you, and it's restoring you. It's teaching and admonishing you to let the peace of Jesus rule. He who sings praise twice St. Augustine said, we sing because there is power in singing out to get to places in my heart that mere words or logic can't touch. And throughout the centuries, Christians have always sung their faith. Songs that are meant to cry out and sing out. And not only are we joining the chorus in this room, we are joining the history of saints gone by that needed to sing out in order to believe what was true. They had to sing it back in to let the peace of Jesus rule in their heart. So we're gonna sing out three songs. I'm gonna invite you to risk singing out. Sing it. It's not just because we, we're recording and it needs to be loud. We're not even doing that. I'm telling you to sing out so that you join in with the process, the, the, the actual power that is in this command that says sing out because it's good for you. We're going to sing out about the peace that Jesus has won for us by his blood. We're going to sing out that it is well with our soul because of Jesus. And finally, we're going to sing out about Jesus the victor who is threatened by nothing. So let's pray and ask Jesus to guide us as we sing out to him. Jesus, guide us now as we um, join in song. We're singing out to our hearts. We're singing out from our hearts that we want and need the peace that you have bought to rule in our hearts. May it rule our moments. May it rule this moment that we are at peace and because we are at peace, we can sing out. Because you have secured our past, present, and future, we can sing out with joy. We can sing out in faith. And we can sing out as one voice in this body, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.